mentioned last week that today we would not jump right back into Ephesians, but we're going to take a, a day and, and pause and think about mission. I'll be honest, this feels a little bit weird. <laughs> My last outline had a date of April on it. Uh, I've not been able to share over the past three weeks, and so I just I praise God for uh, Bud and for Doug and Caleb filling the pulpit uh, very capably. Uh, our hearts have been challenged, I know, over the last few weeks. And so today, uh, I'm going to share a little bit uh, this morning about my experience on my trip to the Middle East. I invite you to come back and to participate uh, tonight. Uh, I have been challenged, and my goal is to, is to invite you into that and to say, look at what God is doing. Here is how you can be a part uh, near and far. So pay attention to that theme as we go throughout this. The passage for this morning's message is very simple, just a couple of verses, but the truths and the implications are, are stunning, and they're incredible. First Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5 say this, As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. A royal priesthood. The language in the ESV has it as a holy priesthood. In verse 5, a challenge to anybody who is a believer in Jesus Christ. And if you don't believe today, if you're not certain about uh, who Jesus is or the promises of God upon your life, uh, I hope that you will see how God wants to bring every single one of us into an amazingly purposeful service of God. And I hope that even today you would consider placing your faith and your trust in Jesus. I want to ask you a question as I start this morning. Do you think that a 74-year-old woman has any usefulness in a foreign culture for a young boy, probably about age 10, traumatized by things that he should never see. Do you think one hour of a 74-year-old woman interacting with a 10-year-old boy through a translator, some basic love and some basic conversation starters, could ever make a dent in this little boy's lack of communication and stunted interaction with adults? ever since traumatic events that happened months ago. You think that maybe she should have just stayed home and sent some money and said, hey, we'll just have somebody else in that culture do it. The first point this morning is that Jesus lives. As you come to him, a living stone, Rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen 
and precious. Lock in on that sentence. Jesus lives. Our faith, (laughs) verse 5, you yourselves like living stones. Jesus is alive. He was rejected. He was killed. He was put in a tomb where they thought they had finally defeated him, and he rose from the dead, displaying the power of God. Jesus is alive. It's not Easter morning. It's every morning. He is alive. We are gathered on this day of the week because Jesus is alive. He is a living stone. And we, as believers, are living stones. I told you we're going to pause on Ephesians, but we're going to get some content from Ephesians. Never fear. All right? We're going to get there in just a minute. Here's Romans 12, 1 and 2. These are very familiar verses, perhaps. If you're just um, new to these, see, see what they say. Paul is writing this letter to the Romans, and he says he's appealing to them by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. The Romans had opportunity to serve the Lord. And for years and years and centuries and centuries, believers had come to present sacrifices that would be killed in the temple before God or food offerings that would be burned up. And then whatever the the substance of that sacrifice would have no earthly usefulness. And the picture that Paul paints through our faith in Christ is that we are living sacrifices. (laughs) That's how we worship God. He's going to work in us. We're going to come with our bodies and we are going to sacrifice for the Lord and we're going to be used because Jesus is alive and we have a faith that makes us alive. Ephesians chapter 2, you were dead in your trespasses. Here's the contrast that Paul makes in this letter. You're dead in your trespasses and your sins, verse 1. But then 4 and 5, but God. Everybody say, but God. But we need to hear that sometimes, don't we? We're thinking one way, we're thinking negatively, we're thinking down the road of God can't use me, I'm useless. But, But God, rich in mercy because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, what did he do? Everybody say this together. Made us alive. You can do better than that one more time. Made us alive. Do you believe today that your faith is alive? It encouraged me to the depths of my soul to see a 74-year-old woman elicit life from a 10-year-old boy through a willing 18-year-old translator that I didn't think was possible. I couldn't believe it, how God used the simple faith of this woman in a household that had been devastated by tragedy. And this boy had seen unspeakable things in recent months. Jesus is alive. We, too, are living stones. Our age, our physical, our mental ability, any other outward markings that people may notice in us or that may make us feel weak, 
we are alive, if we're alive and we have faith in Jesus, there is something alive in you and through you in Christ that has purpose and something that can bring impact. I'll tell you more about that story tonight. Let's take a look at why this is. The end of verse 4, still talking about Jesus, Peter says, in the sight of God, chosen and precious. That's Jesus. Jesus was chosen for the work. Chosen to be rejected. Chosen to suffer. After living a spotless, a pure, a sinless life, leading countless to understand that he was indeed the Messiah and backing it up by miracle after miracle and God-inspired teaching after teaching, Jesus was chosen for that task. Same goes for us. No matter your past, no matter your background, no matter your sins, no matter your shame, no matter your doubt, God can work in you and, and choose to use you in intricately developed and powerful ways that show you who he is. If you're not sure about Christ, if you're watching today online, if you're in this room and you're not sure about Christ. Hear these words that God can work in you. He is a God of great purpose who chose his son for this task. And we, verse 5, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. Not to just be some structure that people walk by and look at and wave and say, isn't that pretty? A living breathing structure. There is no sin that anyone has committed that can keep them from God's purposes. If we turn and if we repent and if we enter into God's promises through faith in Jesus Christ, he can take us and lead us into situations we could never imagine. I'm going to share some testimony uh, about this. I've been learning a lot about this in my own life over the past year. And so we're going to share a couple of uh, experiences uh, that I've had and some others have had. And I hope as you hear these experiences today that, that you'll be challenged. God has plans for you and for me. More than attending uh, events or collecting information or participating to run an organization, those are all good things, but I want you to experience God as deeply and richly as you can as you seek to serve him. He's really at work. We, uh, we had a training yesterday. Had about 20 people gather over at first glance, and um, <coughs> I want to tell just a couple of stories that came out when people made themselves available. Uh, one of the gals uh, that was there yesterday, she went out on, on one of the teams and um, ended up knocking on a door of one of the students that she knew from first glance. And it happened to be uh, one of the parents of the students who was there in the home. And she, she says, oh, well, we, we know your student. And she didn't realize this and didn't put this together until later. But her husband had actually been connecting with this student's other parent recently. And she just was able to put this together in being in the right place in the right time yesterday. And opened up an amazing door for follow-up and for further ministry. 
I love it when God puts us in the right place in the right time. The team that I was on yesterday, we had a chance uh, to, to go and to interact with just a couple of people in the time that we were out uh, trying to share the gospel. And it was amazing. One of the people that we knocked on their, their door is actually a family member of somebody that you and I know very well. <laughs> and it was really incredible. Uh, somebody who um, has been exposed to church, been exposed to Christ, and, and boy, we hope that uh, opportunity is just an opportunity to continue to further that conversation, to further that discussion in great love and follow-up. And man, just talk about being in the right place in the right time. This sense that God works, and he works intricately. All right, that I want us to see today that, uh, yes, we value making a decision for Christ, but after, after our salvation, the joy of serving the Lord and being built up as living stones into a building, just as Christ was chosen, it is this wild and wide-eyed and great adventure to see how the Lord works and to see how he can use ordinary people like you and me and put us in situations where he is showing us that we are in the right place at the right time. I'm going to invite my friend up. Uh, Tom Hall works with E3 Partners, and I have this in my notes. He is the Director of Global Operations. I don't really know what that means. And Tom says, I'm not the only one. Is there a light on that? Yes, there is. All right. Here we go. So here's, here's why Tom is here. I want to I let you know this before he shares this story. He's got an incredible story. But part of my life strategy is that, um, I, well, I give, I, I give Tom a hard time. And part of that is just because I'm insecure. And uh, when you're insecure, you just give everybody else a hard time. All right. Second of all, when you know you're not very good, you surround yourself with people that are a lot better than you are. All right. So this is another part of the strategy. Tom is brilliant. Uh, he really is. He's a sharp, sharp tack. And if you love church planning and if you love mission, uh, he's your guy. Take him for lunch and he'll, he'll, uh, he'll fill your whole afternoon with amazing stuff about what God is doing uh, in the world. And he's going to share uh, some stuff, not just from scripture, but from experience today about this concept of how God can work here and near and far in our lives in intricate ways. How's that for an introduction? Sounds great. All right. Before I hop in, um, I want to say that, uh, you know, Kevin came into my life about 18 months ago, uh, and, and somebody introduced me to Kevin and said, hey, he just came back from a trip, and he is excited about making disciples. Can you just give him a call? I said, okay, sure. Uh, I, I can call, and uh, we started to connect that way, and he has been, uh, you, you are, what a treasure he is to you, as I have gotten to know him over the past 18 months, uh, to work alongside him, to see his, his eagerness and his obedience, and then to meet his family this weekend, uh, and just to see, uh, see how they operate. And so uh, I, am, I am blessed to be here with you all this morning. Um, and I mean this. I said this the other night to Caleb. Uh, your church, your pastors are, are an answer to a lot of prayer. As we pray and fast, as we look at the context within North America and think, how are we going to re-engage? When we think about the lostness across North America, how are we going to re-engage that? We want to serve the North American church. And we pray and we fast for churches and for people like Kevin, like Caleb, 
like you all. And so this is a, a huge answer to prayer to be here. And about a year late. I was supposed to be here a, a year ago. It was supposed to be in May last year, yeah. So it's good to finally be with you face to face. And so... Is that Texas time? Just a year late. Yes. Yeah, we get here when we want to. So... Um, <laughs> All right, as we're talking about just this idea that God chose us, that he, he's constantly, this is what I love about how God works. He is constantly working in, in, in his realm that we are unaware of what he's doing. And he's, he's moving us around like chess pieces, getting it all set up for the checkmate moment, right? And he's, he's constantly doing this. We see this in scripture with the Ethiopian eunuch. We see he, is, he brings the Ethiopian to Jerusalem, sends him back, and on his way back, he tells Philip, who's in doing incredible ministry, and says, why don't you go to the desert road? And there he, he runs. The Bible tells us he runs to get there. And while he's there, the Holy Spirit says, go over to that chariot. And when he gets to the chariot, he gets there at the exact right moment that he would be reading from Isaiah the prophet and have questions about what he's reading and he gets in the chariot, he, he, Philip answers the questions, leads him to faith, and at just the right time, they come across some water so that this man can be baptized. Now just think about this. The, the timing of God in that situation to bring Philip there so that he can explain it on the journey so that he can be baptized and then, you know, I, you know got, the Spirit takes him away. And, but yet, that Ethiopian brings the gospel back to Ethiopia, and, and to this day, Satan is still trying to stamp out the Coptic church in that part of the world, right? And so, what an incredible way that God is at work. And so, I got to see this in my own life. Um, I'm, I'm a, he teased me about being from Texas. It's really hard to, to say I'm from Texas. I've lived there about two and a half years. I'm a Midwestern guy. Uh, grew up in Indianapolis, moved to Kansas City, and was doing work in Kansas City as a church planter, and working in, in the inner city uh, in a very, uh, in a neighborhood apartment complex that is very diverse. A lot of Nepalis live there, a lot of Somalis uh, as well in, in this apartment complex. Um, and it was one of my first times in this neighborhood, and we were going around offering prayer to people. I, I worked with a, a local pastor named Samuel that was there, and um, they had engaged somebody, and they were talking too long, in my opinion, right? And there were too many of us, and I was thinking, I don't know, I don't know where to go, um, and so let's just walk over here, you know? They're gonna, they're gonna spend some time over here, so yeah, I grabbed somebody. I forget even who I took with me. I said, let's just go over to this side of the street, and I knock on the, the very first door. I knock on the door, and you can kind of hear that somebody's there, but not sure if they're gonna answer, and so I knocked again, and all of a sudden, um, somebody opens the window directly above me, which is never a good sign, right? Um, and so they what do you want? Said, oh, well, my name is Tom. I'm, I'm here with my friend, and we're here to, to pray for you. What? You want to do what? I said, well, we're just offering prayer. We really care about the community, and we want, we'd like to pray for you, ma'am. <laughs> One second. And then you hear like this, you know, window slam, a bunch of stuff going on in the background, makes her way down the steps. And she opens the door, and we got to pray for her. But before we prayed for her, she explained to us just how shocked that she was that we were there to pray for her. Because at that exact moment, she was preparing to take her own life. She was prepared and willing to take her life and was crying out, God, if, if I shouldn't do this, save me. I didn't know that. <laughs> but yet, here I was 
available, saying, not even all that available, saying, I'm just going to go to this side of the road. And God brought me there to interact with this woman, to save her from taking her own life. And God works in mysterious ways. Why? Because in 1 Peter 2, verse 4, it says that we are precious and chosen by him. And so if that's true, uh, and we want to follow and we want to focus the, the rest of our time on, on this, this powerful phrase of the priesthood. Uh, yes, we're being built up, a living, a spiritual house, a, a holy priesthood, a royal priesthood. What is that about? Well, uh, clear back in the 1500s, uh, if you're familiar, there's an event called the Reformation. If you don't know much about it, Google it later and do some reading. But part of the reason uh, the reformers sought reform in the church was because there was too much emphasis on the people who were leading the church and not enough emphasis for people who were in the church. And this, this doctrine is a fancy title for it, is the priesthood of all believers. And, and we, we believe this. We believe this right out of 1 Peter. That, uh, and I, I copied down in my notes something that Martin Luther said about this. He said, all are ministers, some are clergy. Right? And so if you see this distinction where, uh, where Pastor Kevin or Pastor Caleb or uh, some other pastor is this person who's way up on a pedestal and, oh, you can never be like them and you, you need all this... Um, training and everything just to be like that person, uh, I, I want to try to help deconstruct that. <laughs> the primary goal of, of paying staff is to, is to equip, all right? We've learned some of this, right? We, sometimes we sit around waiting for authority, uh, but in, in, in reality, we already have it. Look at what Jesus said. This is a reminder. All authority in heaven has been given to me. And what does he say? Beg me the rest of your lives for authority. <laughs> he said, no. He says, go therefore and make disciples, you, go and do it. And he's talking to uh, a group of disciples that are with him before he ascends into heaven. And this is, what he, this is what he tells them to do. Go and make disciples. So I want you to experience that. And, and again, some content from Ephesians. I told you we get a little bit more. Ephesians 4, here's a reminder. What, who did, who did, what did Jesus do? He gave. He gave people. He gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. People with different gifts to do what? To equip the saints and so the goal of being a leader in one of those roles is to help equip. It's not to say that person is the ultimate authority, uh, he is the end all, he is the be all, he knows all. No, that's not true. If you've been around me, you know that's not true. <laughs> okay? And so the goal is, is to, to drive forward and to help everyone act and live out that identity as priests. And here's, here's one of the things that, that ha light bulbs that has gone off for me in the last uh, year and a half or so uh, since God really changed direction for me. Do we approach the Bible as a, a, a textbook, right? Here's a stack of textbooks. Our students are either done with school or, or going to be done with school uh, very soon. And, and they're like, oh, no, I don't want to think about textbooks, right? Finals are coming. Uh, if you haven't ended the school year, I don't want to think about any more textbooks and learning. But it's easy for us sometimes to approach the Bible as this book that we have to master. We want to know the, the summary of it. We want to know about this and that. And it's great to have that academic curiosity about the Bible. But if we never look at the Bible as a training manual, then all we, get, all we do is get stuffed with all this knowledge that we never really put into practice. And so one of the big shifts in my own life over the past year and a half has been uh, the joy of taking the things that I know about the Bible and not only putting them into practice in, in fresh and encouraging ways in my own life, but been the opportunity to lead 
other people and to train and equip others in doing the same thing and finding the same joy. All right, so that's one of the illustrations uh, that I want to get rattling around in our mind as we talk about this whole idea that all believers act as priests. Tom's going to share a little bit more from uh, Acts and and set some things up, uh, just some good challenges for us uh, as we see this in Scripture. Yeah, so as as we think about this idea, all all our priests... Right, and, and that, that's a very Old Testament concept, right? A priest is one who would intercede on behalf of, of others, that would offer sacrifices uh, daily for their own sins and then on the, on the behalf of, of, of people, right? And, and so they were the person that you went to to go to God, right? And so, so now that they're set apart, they're holy, they're distinct. Um, and, and then, you know, we, we know that, that ultimately in the New Covenant, that Jesus has become our high priest. He has fulfilled the function of the high priest. And we are reminded of that uh, in, in, um, in Isaiah 49, of even some of the promises that would be uh, through Jesus and what it means to be the priest. And I want you to read with me Isaiah 49, verses 5 and 6. It says, And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring back Jacob, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. And verse 6 says, he says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. And we read that verse... And we read that in the context of where we are and understand this is a messianic promise. This is a promise of the Christ. This is a promise of the high priest fulfilled in Jesus, that he is a light to the nations to bring the Gentiles to salvation. Right? That's what we think. Well, with that as the background, flip over to Acts chapter 13. And this is along the first missionary journey of Paul. And Paul is traveling through central Turkey. It's his first stop in, in, in Turkey, uh, and he's there, and he is invited to come and to speak at the synagogue. And he delivers this eloquent sermon, um, and, and, and while there, it says that many people were interested. Uh, he, he invited them to come and to believe, and they said, we're going to hear you again about this next week. And so he comes the next Sabbath uh, to, to present, and I'm going to begin in, in cha- uh, verse, chapter 13, verse 44. It says, the next Sabbath... Almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what he was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. I'm pretty sure we just read that in Isaiah, and we agree this is a messianic promise. But here Paul and Barnabas are saying, for the Lord has commanded us. Paul has embraced this messianic promise upon himself when we think about jesus as our high priest 
and the promises that were made for him. And then we see this guy, Paul. Now, understanding he is the Apostle Paul, but he is taking this promise upon himself and applying it to him. This, he clearly understood what it meant to be a priest within the New Covenant. And this is a concept that is, is, I would say, widely accepted when we think about frontier contexts. When we go into to places where there are no churches, when, into unreached, unengaged people groups, it's very easy for us to understand and to give away the authority to be a priest, to tell regular, everyday, average Joes and Susans to go and to make disciples, to share the gospel, right? But oftentimes, as cultures become more institutionalized in Christianity, the priesthood, while we preach it, isn't always taught as much. Another example of this is in Acts 8.1. We see in Acts 8.1, the in Acts chapter 7, the stoning of Stephen. And on that day, a great persecution arose against the church, and everybody left Jerusalem except the apostles. All right, so we see everybody scattered to Judea and Samaria except the apostles. They stayed in Jerusalem. And then if you flip over to chapter 11, verses 19 through 22. Sorry, I'm doing a little biblical gymnastics here. Uh, but it falls, and it says, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them... Men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, also preaching the Lord Jesus, and the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. So here we have an example in a frontier context. The gospel had not made it to Antioch yet. And because of persecution, the leaders of the church didn't go anywhere, but all the common, ordinary people, the craftsmen, the doctors, the, the, the blacksmiths, they, they all left town because they were afraid for their lives. And they fled north to Syria, to, uh, up into that region, uh, and they, into Antioch, and, and they began to proclaim the, Lord, the word of the Lord. And what did they reproduce in Antioch? A church. Common, normal everyday believers embrace this idea, identity that we are priests. I don't need Peter to come up to Antioch to tell these people how to follow Jesus. I don't need Peter to come up to baptize these people. I don't need Peter to come up here and administer the Lord's Supper. We're just going to do it because that's what we did in Jerusalem, and now we're in a new place, and we're going to tell people about Jesus, and we're going to do those same things there. Now, I said that this is often a practice in frontier context. And I would challenge us that here in Akron, when we look around us and we look at, there are churches on many corners in Akron, across the United States, in Texas, right? There are churches. But here, 90% of the city is far from God. We live in a culture that was once very institutionalized and Christian, where we allowed for the priesthood and the identity of all believers to not be practiced as much because it wasn't necessary, because many people were believers. So there was no need to do that. But now, 
we live in a culture that's totally different. My neighborhood in Dallas, Texas, I would say 60% of my neighborhood was born somewhere else. They were born in India, born in the Middle East, born in China. Not a whole lot of people look like me and speak the language I speak. And it's my job to function as a priest in that neighborhood, to intercede, to bring Jesus to my neighbors. Thank you, Tom, for the encouragement. Uh, I want to just put a, a little bit more flesh on that, and then we'll close with a challenge today. Um, in thinking through this, many, many different examples uh, that I can give, but a couple of months ago, uh, Joanne shared kind of her journey with uh, Child Evangelism Fellowship up here. The last year is so difficult, right? All you want to do is evangelize kids and uh, not being able to do that in a public school setting because they haven't allowed, and either have, schools haven't been open or haven't been allowed to, to have groups come in, but uh, to find creative ways uh, to struggle through last summer and to continue to, to share the gospel at people's homes and residences. And, and even, uh, I don't even know if many of you know this, but I, how many was it? Was it three girls that came to Christ the last Wednesday we had programming? Just this dogged determination to continue to share the gospel. We talk so much about making disciples, and a big part of that is just sharing the truth of who uh, Jesus is. And so I love that determination. I love uh, the, the spirit that says, hey, I know things aren't ideal, but we're going to continue to press on and share the gospel. I'll talk a lot more tonight about the, the ministry couple that hosted our team in the Middle East. But neither of them are professional missionaries or ministry staff anywhere. They are two people who have come alive to Jesus Christ in uh, really kind of a, a, a spirit of revival in how God is working and, and drawing people. And God is using uh, this couple to meet the needs of trauma around them. They're taking on burdens. They're helping. Uh, they're trying to do the best they can, but they're sharing the gospel. And they're trying to get people into the word of God rather than trusting in literally the priest uh, at church or a leader uh, who is telling them what to do and um, trying to get them to, to go through religious routines. No, we want to just get you into the Word of God so you can know it for yourself. We want to explain to you the gospel so you can hear it and respond to it. And, and, and this couple uh, are, are growing. Uh, they're being trained. They're responsive. But it's this vision of average, ordinary people carrying out the mission and doing so at great cost doing so even in, in their particular uh, case and I'll, I'll give some more specifics tonight but at, at perhaps even great risk of physical harm to themselves or their family and they're willing to do it because it's the call that God has placed on their lives so we think about mission today Here's a, a slide you're going to see again if you, if you participate tonight. I want us to think about mission. The very same principles that, that I've been learning, I've been encouraged over the last year and a half and, and, and boldly and courageously trying to just share the gospel, 
uh, trying to uh, help us understand what making disciples is so we can do it uh, on our own in our lives as God brings people into our lives who need the gospel or need discipled. Um, that we don't, we don't just train up to go on a trip. I didn't train for anything specific to go on this trip. What was in fact true is that mission here and the principles that I had spent the last year or so learning before I traveled to the Middle East are the same principles that we saw there. In play, being used day by day and changing the kingdom of God forever and ever. Mission here, the same thing when we get on a plane and go to a different place. Mission there and mission there. The same thing as mission here. And for any future travel, the same thing. Mission here will be the same principles that we're learning and growing and trying to implement mission there. And mission there. Mission here. I want you to see how the whole thing can work together. We don't, we don't glamorize or glorify short-term missions or long-term missions as some other kind of work that the principles that are in the Bible are good for us in Akron, they're good for us in the Middle East, they're good for those that are serving and laboring there, and they're good for us here. We want to see that, uh, that unity in mission and how it's carried out. So we'll close today. Here's the challenge. How will you, how will we serve the mission that God has for us? How will we respond to the brutal reality that about 90% of people around us in, in Akron or in Summit County, about 90% of the people don't know Jesus. How will we do that? Now, nobody wants uh, the, the whole scenario where somebody goes on a trip and gets excited and comes back and says, hey, we're doing it all wrong. <laughs> right? We have to change everything we're doing. We've got to throw it out. We've got to do it this way because this is what I saw God do. That has not happened. Okay? A year and a half ago, I went on a short-term missions trip and God absolutely changed my life. He changed the course of my passion for ministry and how I saw myself in the role that I, as I serve here as a pastor of God's Memorial Church and as a new role that he's called me into part-time with uh, E3 Partners as an organization. And as, as I plead and as I share this encouragement and my excitement, I do so out of love for every single one of you as your pastor. I don't do so because I think you have to change everything you're doing or stop everything that we're doing, but we have to evaluate what we're doing. The challenge is how is what we're doing? How are we ministering in light of our command to go and make disciples? How does it all fit into the Great Commission? And can we adjust and improve some of the things that we're doing to better pursue the Great Commission? been challenged to ask a lot of those questions in my own life, and that's been part of uh, the training that I've received and part of the training that uh, we've been given, even including uh, to yesterday. I hope that it helps us to understand priesthood, that every single one of us has a role, has a part we can play, and that you can be trained up, that you can share, that you can fuel obedience to the Great Commission. I hope hearing these stories this morning doesn't intimidate you. I hope it helps your hearts to leap with joy. Hey, I can be a part of that. And there's a million, literally, <laughs> ways that we can be a part of it. The challenge for us today is how will that happen? I want you to think about a next step. I'm going to give you a few ideas. I said there's a, a bunch more. 
maybe you want to share the gospel with that neighbor of yours and you're not sure how. You say, hey, I'd love to, I'd love to learn a, more, a little more about how to do that. Can you help me be confident in that? Um, maybe you want to learn how to pray more effectively and more intentionally. Maybe you are thinking about how you can be more effective in a role or ministry that you're serving in. Maybe you just sense that God is stirring in your life and in your heart this morning and you're encouraged and he, he, he wants more obedience from you and you're not even sure what to do with it, but you just know that God's presence is working and, you're, and you want to take us. I want you to consider this. I want to leave some time to pray this morning before we sing our last song. And after we pray, I'm going to give you a specific opportunity uh, to respond. And so let's take time and let's listen. Is the Holy Spirit challenging you to a specific step of obedience? Is he challenging you to, to something that will help you understand and engage more in this idea of being a part of the priesthood of all believers, actively a part of the kingdom of God, seeking to serve the commission that Jesus gave us to go and make disciples?